Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Brian Lubers, Dr. Philip Lancaster, and Dr. Dustin Pendell. Good morning, guys. Morning, Good Brad. morning, Brad. Good morning. Happy to have you guys with us and happy to have you with us listening as well. We, we appreciate you listening to this podcast and, and we really try to put together topics based on things that would be relevant to you. And we always appreciate if you email and we've got a listener question today, but you can always email us at bci at ksu.edu. You can also email there to sign up for the e-blast that goes out weekly. And on today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about high commodity prices and how to how to manage some of those impacts to your operation. We'll talk drought management strategies. And then we're going to talk a little bit on the health side about when we process calves, young calves that were born this spring, should we be implanting them or not? And we'll get Dr. Lancaster's opinion. And then finally, how do we handle those vaccines at this time of year? But before we jump into that, it is a great time of year, guys. It is graduation time. People are graduating or have already graduated and are moving on to the next phases. Some of us graduated a few years in the past. So I want to ask you guys how well you remember. I want to know who won the Super Bowl or the World Series the year you graduated from high school. Now, looking it up, Dustin. Oh, I have, I have no idea. See, the Dallas Cowboys would have been winning Super Bowls through high school, but I'm not sure if they won the Super Bowl the year I graduated or not. Okay, so you didn't guess the Bills, which that's a good call, because they, they, did, they did not. That's a pretty good call. Dustin, do you know? Uh, I don't know who won in uh, baseball, but it, it, I mean, Philip was right. It was... Uh, it was the Dallas Cowboys the year I graduated. I don't know about the year he graduated. Yeah. Ryan? Been- yeah, I I don't know for sure. I'll I'll take a random guess and say it was the 49ers. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh I think you guys could be right, because I'm not gonna ask you what year you graduated, but Dallas and the 49ers would have uh, covered a big stretch there. So I know I hit you guys off guard with that one, but it, it's always interesting to think back and how things, how things change. And then it, it is a really neat time, you know, here at the vet school as the students, and we've just got the new students into the clinics that are very excited about being here. And the students that were ready to go get out and practice just left uh, uh, recently And so it is a great time of year. One of the things, though, at this time of year, it's also uh, planting or most of the crops have been planted by now, at least the corn crop. Uh, But we're seeing some changes in those commodity prices. And and Dustin wanted to kind of get some thoughts from you. What do we do with some of these high commodity prices? And we'll talk about drought here in a minute. But what are some what are some ways to manage that for my operation? Oh, that's a, that's a really great question. Pretty timely, I guess, as well. Uh, there's probably a few things that one could do. Uh, so we're thinking about commodity high commodity prices, and from a feed perspective, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to comment on this much. I'll let, let Philip dis- discuss more. But you know, possibly changing a ration if you're thinking feed or maybe different commodities. Uh, but from an from an economic standpoint, I guess what comes to my mind is risk management. 
to trying to reduce that price risk and or production risk. I know we've talked a lot about risk in the past. Uh, so can you lock in a price possibly, whether it's with some kind of contract, whether futures or maybe a forward contract? Uh, there's a lot of government, maybe USDA uh, insurance products that deals with uh, production risk, price risk, including your feeds, uh, such as livestock risk protection, livestock gross margins, whole farm revenue, pasture, rangeland, and forage, uh, annual forage. Of course, you got your crop insurances as well. So those would be just a few things that come to mind uh, as possible ways to try to manage these high commodity prices. So, so when you say lock in the prices, and I'm going to ask, and it may sound like an odd question, but am I taking some risk by doing risk management? Am I risking decreasing my profit by doing some risk management? You could, yes. Uh, so if you lock in a price now, let's say the price moves in your favor, you've already locked in that price. So you could be leaving some money on the table or reducing profit. But again, it comes back to what's the definition of risk management. I mean, you're trying to reduce the price risk and if, and if, if the markets happen to move with you and you could be in a better position, but Again, you kind of know what your maybe your break evens are, and you're trying to you're trying to lock in such that you can keep those break evens. Uh, yeah, so. and I think it's it's the the key to the risk management is not that it locks in a profit, but it lets you leverage and and potentially do more of what you want to do. Right? It's not you don't do risk management to necessarily be more profitable from that individual enterprise, it may allow you to expand. Am I, am I thinking about that the right way, Dustin? So, yeah, I guess when I when I think about this, futures markets come to mind. And so are you trying to hedge or are you trying to speculate? And so if you're trying to hedge, you know, you're really trying to, you have a stake in that particular commodity and you're trying to, uh, you, you know, lock in that price. I guess I'm trying to think of a different terminology, but such that, you know, uh, that maybe you don't lose a lot of money, but again, the markets could go in your favor where you could start making a lot of money or profit. Uh, but again, that's not the idea is you're trying, you're, not, you're trying to offset that downside. You're, you're more interested in that, maybe that downside risk. Okay. Yep. So absolutely. So you want to manage that downside risk and, and I think this this topic, and we've heard a lot of people talk about the high commodity prices. And one of the things you you gave some options there of laying out some risk management strategies. But I think it's important to be aware of where we are today may not be where we are in six months, and we don't know, which is why those those strategies help protect. The other concern that's come up, we had a great listener question, uh, and it's really on how do, how do we handle drought management. And and here we sit in late spring, early summer, and there are some regions of the country that are already talking about uh, drought, the impact on forage, the impact on crops, uh, the impact on the potential hay crop, and saying, hey, let's get ahead of this thing. So, so Philip, what are, what are some of the ways that we can do to kind of get ahead of it if we can? Yeah, Brad, I think you're right. I mean, the the decision needs to be made right now we don't want to wait until um like you said earlier 
uh, we're running out of feed, and then that's when we make the decision to do something about it. Um, and so if, if we're making that decision now, we've got lots of options as opposed to, say, midway through the winter when we're running out of hay. Um, we obviously, so one option is to plant some more drought-tolerant crops this time of year that we could harvest for feed um, later on. Um, another option is to think about destocking um, early so that we can prolong that grazing season and, and um, keep and, and conserve our, our feed resources. And there's a couple of different ways to, to destock. One you may immediately may think about is destocking the, the number of cows you've got. But if we've got a spring calving herd, one um, more economical way, and in my mind, maybe Dustin's got some other thoughts on that, is to destock is to early wean the calves. And so if we wean those calves early at about, you know, four months of age or so, um, we're going to pull those calves off the pasture. And so that's going to decrease our forage consumption. But when we take that calf off the cow, a lactating cow consumes about 20 to 30 percent more forage per day than a non-lactating cow. So we take that calf off the cow and that cow's forage consumption is going to decrease. Um, and so that's going to save it. So every three cows is like saving a cow. And so that that's going to help us out a lot. And then when we get into. You're saying this, every, every three cows that I wean a calf from, it's like I'm feeding one less cow. Yeah. So if I wean the calves and I wean them from three, it's like I reduced from three to two. Yep. It's like, yep. It's like I got it. <clears throat> it'd be the same as, as selling off a cow. Yep. Um, and so that helps us out a lot. And then when we get into the uh, winter feeding period and, and we're, we've grazed up our pasture and things like that, there's some other, there's options. Um, obviously, we can buy feed, which that is expensive in itself. But think about the type of feed that we're going to buy. So you would normally maybe think about buying hay um, or something like that. But when we look at the price of, of hay when, relative to its nutrient content or really its energy value, it's really expensive. And so some other feeds, other commodities um, like uh, distillers grains or soybean holes or, and things like that, from a cost perspective, as far as cost per unit of TDN or energy in that feed, they're actually a lot cheaper. And so one thing that we can do with those cows is we can purchase commodity feeds and feed a more moderate energy diet that, that uses less forage and actually meets the cow's requirements with less total feed and, and can, can reduce that, that feed bill in, in some situations. And, and as yeah. we just discussed, when we're talking about high commodity prices, you know, that, that gets into some trade-offs there and you got to do make sure you do the math yeah absolutely and i think you're 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 correct we want to have a probably a plan and a backup plan because none of us really know if it's going to rain and at some point it, it starts to impact further and further brian what what thoughts do you have as you think about kind of addressing this listener question what do you what do you do to kind of prepare because we don't know what's going to happen 
Yeah, I, I don't know if I have any specific recommendations, but I think I'll just reiterate what you said is having that plan earlier rather than trying to, you know, trying to mitigate your way along and then getting to a point where you realize, so if, let's say your plan was to, you know, early wean your calves and then you get deeper into the grazing season and find that that wasn't enough. And now, you know, so I think, I think having an earlier plan rather than just thinking, well, we'll, we'll do this to push it off a little bit. I think you have to have, like you said, plan A and then plan B or plan A plus plan B plus plan C. So I think the early planning is the big key. Here's a, here's a, an idea that I've heard and I've had good intentions of implementing, but haven't always been able to do it or do it the way I want. And, and the idea is you, you take a consistent picture at a few locations on your ranch with a yardstick or some measure of the forage. And you may do that in May, June, July, August, and as you can compare back year to year, you get a feel from some of those years. Oh, yeah, in 2019, the forage looked like this, and here's how it ended up turning out. You don't know exactly the pattern. But to your point, Brian, the earlier I recognize, accurately recognize the severity of the situation, the better decisions I could make. And, and I think that's, the, that's one of the keys that we're getting at is have a plan and a contingency plan but then you have to decide when to pull the trigger. And we're not always going to be right. We're dealing with the weather. We're dealing with a lot of factors outside of our control. So having those plans, and it's just exactly what Dustin just talked about. It's just a different type of risk management. It's not exactly the same as what we're, what we're talking about here. So I think that leads us to our, our cattle chat checklist this week, which is on strategies to consider for drought management on your operation. Our BCI Cattle Chat Checklist this week are strategies to consider for drought management on your operation. Number five, consider alternative diets to reduce winter hay consumption. Number four, wean springborn calves early. Number three, reduce the population consuming grass by destocking. Number two, plant drought tolerant feed sources. And number one, buy additional feed. And that's our BCI Cattle Chat Checklist for this week. Well, let's do a fun topic. So we did high commodity prices and the potential for drought. Let's do something that, that might be fun. And what could be more fun than talking about implants in young calves? And I think this is, and I'll say this is a fun topic because Philip, whatever position you take on this, I think I might take the opposite just so I can argue with you a little bit about what we should do. So let's let's paint a scenario. And Brian and Dustin, I want you guys to jump in on this too. Uh, we've got calves that were born in the spring. We're getting ready for pasture turnout. They're 45 to 60 days old. I plan to save some replacement heifers and I plan to sell the steers at weaning or shortly after weaning? Should I implant or should I not implant? I, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of, it, of, of implanting those calves. I mean, like you said, depends on your marketing a little bit, but the return on investment of an implant is, 
is almost always there. Um, you know, in playing that calf um, this time of year, it is going to add, you know, 10, 20 pounds of weaning weight to that, to that calf. And, and you're, you're going to spend a couple dollars ahead to add that 10 or 20 pounds. So it, it's a pretty good um, investment. Um, but, you know, one thing to think about is if you haven't done it before, you know, you, you need to have a little bit of practice with the technique because if you don't do it right, it doesn't work correctly and you won't get that benefit. Yep. So, and we're talking about uh, giving a product that would be put under the ear. And I probably should clarify on, on, on implants to make sure. And there are specific implants for these young calves, right, Brian? Yes, that's correct. So, so we'd want to have specific follow the label directions. And, and I think, Philip, your, your uh, approach is right of making sure that it, it should get us a good return on investment. What about, we just talked, we just talked related to drought. Will they return, give us the same return on investment if for, if the forage base is really limited? Possibly not. If the, if the, if they're, if those calves are limited in the amount of nutrients that they can consume, then that will that they don't have the nutrients to add that additional weight. And so that could limit the response to the implant. Yeah. I told you I was just going to go opposite way of whatever <laughs> you said. So it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be a surprise. And, and, but, but in all honesty, the, the, what the implants do, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, is they're going to increase the efficiency of the process and for an efficient, a more efficient process can create more pounds as long as it has available resources. If resources are limited, and, and this is a consideration in your implant strategy, if your resources are really limited, it will probably still give you a return. It may not be as big of a return as you could have received if you'd had more resources for those calves to go to. Is that fair, Philip? Yeah, yeah, I would. I, that's what I would expect. I, I would expect expect those calves to have some improvement in weaning weight but it may not be as large yeah what about the replacement heifers right that that's a that gets into a different question and and some of that and you probably jump in here um some more than i do but the, there's some concern by implanting those replacement heifers by providing them an exogenous hormone we're going to reduce their reproductive system development here through these early stages, which could have some long-term ramifications on reproductive efficiency. Yeah, so there's been some work that would say there's two, uh, from a reproductive standpoint, there's two times that we probably don't want to implant heifers. At, at birth is not a good one. And at puberty, which probably should go without saying, but as they come into puberty and they're getting ready to come into heat, not a good, not a good time to implant them and give them exogenous hormones. Uh, anywhere in between, there's some, some mixed work there, although I would say it depends a lot on, on the product that you're using. And if you're using one that's labeled for heifers and how far away you are from breeding, maybe a, a bigger question beyond the repro on the heifers is, does it, does it benefit the 
does it benefit the heifer? And the heifer itself, if she's going to be weaned and raised on the farm, if she weighs 20 pounds more at weaning, or if I put that weight on her after weaning on the way to pre-breeding in an efficient manner, it may not make a big difference. So like we were saying, those these exogenous hormones or exogenous hormones would be ones that were that we're giving, not the ones that the heifer her because the heifer herself is going to be producing hormones, but the exogenous are the ones that we're giving in this implant um, could influence her if given at the incorrect time. Any other thoughts there, Brian? No, I, I think, like you said, the big thing with, with implants and getting the return investment, I mean, there's lots of evidence that shows that the return and investment is there, but, you know, Im- implants aren't magic. You need the nutrients and the calories in order for them to work right. And so if, if you're doing that, and again, relating back to the drought management we talked about, if you're doing that in a resource limited environment, it's a different plan. So you, you, you still, the implants will still pay, but you may have to speed up, you know, weaning or destocking, or you're going to have to speed those strategies up. So you're using your resources more intensely in a shorter period of time. But yeah, to, to put an implant in, in a, in a drought area with no resources, you, you will see a reduced uh, return on that investment. Absolutely. And, and, but it is, and Dustin, we're just as we're talking through this, it is typically a good investment and a relatively small investment. So back to our risk conversation, it uh, it's not a huge investment. So typically they're they're a good thing, and and we see them used relatively frequently. Do you have any thoughts from your standpoint, Dustin? Uh, not really. I just had I, a lot of questions actually just kept coming up in my mind, but probably more academic in nature. Uh, because Philip's comment about, you know, in a drought or reduced nutrient, and it's still, you and Brian point out, they still probably pay for themselves. But I just wonder, is there a threshold at a certain, okay, how much nutrients do you need before, or, you know, when it pays for itself? So in other words, I, I know I'm going to have a drought, or, and, it, and we think it's going to be like this. Can Is there like a could you come up with a rule of thumb, if you will? Okay, it makes no yeah. sense if it's this. Uh, great question, because we're say, we're saying, hey, there are some conditions under which you might want to or you might not want to, and you're pinning us down saying, okay, well, when are those conditions? Philip, you want yeah. to take first shot? You want me to? Uh, so it would have to be, pretty restrictive if you if you think about the cost of the implant per head let's just say two dollars which some of them are a little more than that but two dollars a head and right now that that weaned calf at 500 pounds is say a dollar 50 you know he only has to gain a couple pounds to make it pay off um a couple pounds more sorry not just a couple pounds he's got to gain a couple pounds more than the non-implanted animal and so from a nutrition perspective, the animal has to be extremely restricted in nutrients for that not to happen. Over a 120-day period, right? Yeah. I mean, he's got, a, he's got a huge time to gain a couple more pounds to break even. And so um, the, I think the, the trade-off or the, the difference is not that it's not going to 
be a positive return on investment. It's just not going to be as large as it normally would be when that calf has adequate um, forage available to graze. Good call out. And I, I totally agree with Philip's answer because I, I think that is the, the, when I said that earlier, it's not, it's not that he's going to lose money. So what are the situations I'd implant? Probably al almost all of them. Uh, especially on those calves, it's going to make sense to get them to be a little more efficient. My payoff's not going to be the same year over year, right? It's going to it's going to be a little bit different, so I'd expect some differences. But it, it it does make me plant that seed in my mind that it's pretty important that I've got the resources out there for the cattle. Now, sometimes I've got control over that, sometimes I don't. So, good question, Dustin. One, one last topic that we wanted to talk about today and, and back to processing calves and cows at this time of year is a little bit different than in the fall. And, and Brian, I know you've done both as, as you've been out and about in practice and uh, participated in those. When we get to this time of year, there are some days that we're working cattle and it's pretty darn hot. And there are some implications for the cattle, but also for the products that we're using what are your thoughts? What are some of the things that I should be thinking about if we're going to go vaccinate cows today and it's kind of warm and sunny? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think when we get past, you know, what pathogens we're trying to vaccinate for or protect my herd from, we get past, you know, what route of administration is best, then we've selected the product, right? And so once we get that product selected, you know, all a lot of these, you know, vaccines, they're especially the modified lives, they work because there's a, there's a virus or a bacteria in there that's able to reproduce. And if we're handling these outside of the recommended storage conditions and, and we kill that particular virus or bacteria, it's not able to work. It's not able to produce any immunity in the animal. And it, you know, it's essentially not an effective vaccine. And so we get to this time of year, your, your temperature is absolutely a big consideration for us. Uh, most of these vaccines need to be kept cool. And so, you know, we recommend having a, having a cooler next to the chute where that's where you're keeping your vaccine. Uh, if it's a really, really hot day, we get into the deeper part of summer, um, even even keeping your syringes in those coolers between. And I've seen some pretty creative solutions to that, Brad, where, you know, people modify vaccine or va modify a cooler where they punch holes in the lid and the vaccine, the, the automatic syringe can sit down in there where it's keeping it relatively cool, right? Um, you know, if it you know, maybe something where we put fewer doses in a syringe and we just have to, instead of having 10 doses in a syringe, maybe we have five because that's the speed with which we're processing and it's not getting our vaccine warm. Uh, you know, other things we think about, so we make a big deal and with implants, we'd make a big deal about disinfecting needles between animals. We don't want to transmit bloodborne pathogens from animal to animal within a herd. We do the same sometimes with vaccines. And again, with those modified lives, we need to be careful about, we shouldn't be using disinfectants. So, you know, alcohol, uh, the, the different blue solutions or green solutions or whatever you have, uh, those can certainly uh, affect the, the viruses and bacteria in our modified live vaccines. And we stay away from those. And just a, just a simple needle wipe or changing needles um, would be a more effective and still give us an effective vaccine. And then the last thing I always talk to producers about is um, 
the the integrity of that bottle stopper. So if we're you know going in and out of that rubber stopper a lot, um, we can contaminate the the stock of our vaccine. And so uh, we always recommend you know changing needles whenever you're going back into the bottle or have a needle that's dedicated just to pulling the vaccine out of the bottle. Uh, Try not to get bottles that are much bigger than what you're going to use in a short period of time. It is possible to get contamination in that vaccine and cause some serious, pretty, ad, pretty serious adverse events the next time you start injecting that vaccine in the next group of animals. So those are probably the big ones for me, Brad. Yeah, and I think you're a couple of things that you said there, Brian, that I think are, are really important is, uh, my temptation is often to load. How, how much do I put in the syringe? Well, it depends how much, how big the syringe is. As much as that thing will hold, so I don't have to refill it. At this time of year, I may, I may not want to do that. How much do I mix up? Well, I'd, my preference and just the way I'd like to work, I'd like to mix everything up at once, and then we go, and then we're done. And this—that's not the plan. And and conceptually, it's the same as a lot of the stuff we heard with the COVID vaccines. Some of the vaccines are very specific temperature requirements. Once you mix them up, you say, "Oh, we got to vaccinate now, or it's going to." Well, these cattle vaccines are the same way. And when you mentioned modified live versus killed, a, an easy distinction on your modified lives, they're often vaccines that you are going to have to mix right before you use them. And they've got a, a limited lifespan after that. The killed, I'm drawing out of a container, always a new needle. The only, only thing I would add to what, what you've said, Brian, is there's really good resources on the Beef Quality Assurance website, and there's a good fact sheet. So if you go to bqa.org and you search for vaccine handling or vaccine procedures, there's some really good information there. So we, we appreciate the, the feedback, and, and as always, we like to hear from you. So if you have a question, a topic, something you'd like us to talk about, send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. 